Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Happy Imbolc, Kate. Happy Bridget's Day. Yeah, Imbolc blessings, my friend. And right on time for today, our listener question from the Tipsy Gypsy. She asked us about our favorite Imbolc practices, rituals, and spells. So Kristen, let's jump right in. Yeah, and... I think literally anytime someone asks me about Sabbath plans, I say gardening, (laughs) but in bulk is a great time for gardening and prepping the land for your spring and summer gardens. And this is not just according to me, but also our ancestors. Um, But right now on our farm, you know, we're getting our tomatoes in the ground and revamping our herb gardens. Um, But of course, what you're planting right now will, you know, depend on where you are in the world and if your ground has thawed. But this is also a fun time to plant metaphorical or magical seeds in our craft. In Llewellyn's Sabbath Essentials series, the book on Imbolc lists a bunch of Imbolc correspondences, and it says that Imbolc is a time for rituals around new beginnings, awakenings, renewals, purification, or spring cleaning. Um, It sounds like a good time for broom magic. Really any sort of spell to move energy after a season of rest. This list of correspondences also mentions a quote from Starhawk about childlike delight in all things. And so I think doing something playful, uh, maybe something nostalgic, something that reminds you of your inner child or your inner little witch, as I like to call her, um, is a fun Sabbath spell. But what do you think, Kate? Yeah, all of those are beautiful, big yeses from me. Um, I think, you know, in my personal practice, usually at this time of year, it's about altar making and also poetry magic, like as the poet, goddess, Bridget, um, kind of presiding over this day. I love to spend some time writing and reflecting and getting clear just about where I'm at right now and in the sort of middle end of winter. Um, I think I wrote in the January box ritual that in bulk is the dream of the seed before the seed exists. And so I've kind of been holding that little line that came through and my imaginal seeds, sort of much like the imaginal cells of the caterpillar before it becomes a butterfly. That's kind of my in bulk ritual. I love those. And even just you like describing them sounds so poetic. And I love that idea of just like, you know, writing poetry on Bridget's Day. Mm -hmm. 
So as always, listeners, tell us what you're doing for Imbolc, how you celebrate, what your plans are. We would love to hear from you. And for today, for our Imbolc episode, we have a super special guest who is going to speak with us about mythology, mycelial worlds, and flowering wands. Yes, our episode today is with Sophie Strand. Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. But it would probably be more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Give her a salamander and a stone and she'll write you a love story. Sophie was raised by house cats, puffballs, possums, raccoons, and an opinionated, crippled goose. In every neighborhood she's ever lived in, she's been known as the walker. She believes strongly that all things are interconnected, between beings, ideas, differences, mythical gradients. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans Species, Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists, Heal the Masculine, came out in 2022 from Inner Traditions. Her eco-feminist historical fiction, Reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions this year. Her books of poetry include Love Song to a Blue God and Those Other Flowers to Come and The Approach. Her poems and essays have been published by Art Papers, The Dark Mountain Project, Poetry.org, Unearthed, Braided Way, Creatrix, Your Impossible Voice, The Doris, Persephone's Daughters, and Entropy. She has recently finished a work of historical fiction, The Madonna Secret, that offers an eco-feminist revision of the Gospels. She is currently researching her next epic, a mythopoetic exploration of ecology and queerness in the medieval legend of Tristan and Isolde. So excited for that. Can't wait to read that. Uh, But this conversation weaves and winds through the mycelial network of stories, mythologies, reimagined, and the magic that exists interconnected all around us. Sophie joined us via Zoom from her home in New York. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lisenby. And today we have a very special guest with us, Sophie Strand. Thank you so much for being here with us, Sophie. It's it's so great to connect. Well, thank you so much for having me here in this magical solstice season. Um, it feels like a nice time to be doing a podcast about magic and alchemy. Before we get started, would you mind sharing your big three with us um, in astrology? So your sun, hmm. moon, and rising signs. Definitely. I am a Sagittarius sun. I am a Virgo rising and a Libra moon. Beautiful. And what are you guys? I'm curious. I'm an Aquarius sun, Scorpio rising, Aries moon. Hmm. Aries moon. I have a lot of friends with Aries moon. (laughs) The chaos in the world. (laughs) So much chaos. Um, I am a Capricorn sun, Scorpio rising as well, and a Taurus moon. Okay, so we have a, we have the full spread right here. We do I like that. Well rounded, and then happy solar return, maybe recently or upcoming. Mm, yeah, it just happened last week. Ah, actually, happy birthday! Um, <laughs> thank you. And I actually think my Saturn return hit early, 
So it ends in February. So I really feel like I'm like coming to the end of my tower card couple of years of complete reconstruction. Yeah. Saturn and Aquarius. Same, same, same. Same. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a doozy. It's been a time. <laughs> I'm glad that we're connecting on the, um, as we exit this moment. That's, that's yeah. nice. That's soothing. <laughs> I keep praying to cats. I'm like, help me land on my feet, please. Mm, <laughs> prayer to cats. That's such, I love that. Yeah. 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 Nine lives as well. We need them. <laughs> Sophie, can you tell us a bit about you and your work in your own words? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I'm a cop. I'm an author, but that feels like a facile thing to say. I'm a neo-troubadour um, animist. You know, I tell love stories of, of rocks and minerals and microbes in deep time. Um, I believe that everything is alive, but alive differently than me. And that keeps me asking questions. I write at the intersection of spirituality, ecology, and storytelling. Um, and that can take many different forms, historical fiction, essays, poetry. Um, I, I say that I am promiscuous in terms of genres um, and modes of communication. Um, and yeah, I'm a compost heap, which means I'm decaying very actively as someone with an incurable connective tissue disease. But also I am a compost heap in that I am the combination of all the thinkers, the animals, the beings, the mentors, the teachers, the ancestors that have combined inappropriately to sprout into the person, into the voice that I bring to you today. Mm, I love that description of your work. That's really beautiful. And I have to ask, have you always been a storyteller? Hmm. I think I have. Well, I do think I was blessed to be born to parents who are writers and who um, put a lot of importance in books and storytelling and fairy tales and myth. So I grew up in a, a writing culture and a storytelling culture. Um, so I, <laughs> I took up the family tradition. Um, and I used to walk around with my dad gave me a handheld recorder and I used to walk around telling stories into it in the woods, like walking around as a little kid and recording. So I definitely had like a deep attunement to orality and to the tradition of storytelling as being boats of breath, as being interstitial and relational and always happening within an environment and a context that I write things down now, but I definitely started my tradition as, as in the spoken word. Mm, it's very like Twin Peaks of you. <laughs> and and you have a beautiful book out in the world right now, uh, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. And this book considers traditional masculinity and masculine characters in the realms of myth and folklore, plants and religious history before, quote, reseeding our minds with alternative perspectives on male identity, quote, regardless of gender. I would love to know more about rewilding and, and what this word means to you. Well, it's a word that was actually, I would say that the, the term rewilding doesn't actually occur that much inside the book. And the subtitle of my book was given to me by my publishers, that the original subtitle was much queerer, much less anthropocentric. Um, you know, rewild, you know, is almost theological in its attempt to return to some imaginary Eden. But I always say that we aren't children of the garden. We are children of the crater, that we are children of extinction events, that mammalian life only got to experiment and the open space 
space opened up by the Chicxulub crater impact that killed off most of life. And that, you know, many different types of life owe their bodies, their morphologies to extinction events. So I do want to complicate that idea of rewilding as it has become a little um, conflated with um, theology, with this kind of Edenic vision um, of a utopia that existed before. So rewilding is a difficult term. I do think that I, I have tried to compost it as I've been given it. My original title was Transspecies Magicians, Rhizomatic Harpists, Lichenized Lovers, and Lunar Kings Heal the Masculine. Oh, I love, so very, I love that. <laughs> very queer and maximalist and, you know, non-human. But, you know, you have to, we have to compromise. And, you know, if you're language is, isn't accessible. It's not revolutionary. So I am thankful that some people came in and tried to say, here's language that might be an invitation rather than a closed door. Um, and so rewilding, I think when, when we, um, when we compost it, when we come to it from an open-hearted, feral perspective, is really what does it mean to realize that there's no such thing as, as a human being without a root system, that we all are environmentally embedded, that we are all body plus, body plus breath, plus microbiome, plus other species in our environment, and that we only stay alive by virtue of this relationality. So rewilding for me is coming back into the roots and into our relationships. Mm which is such an important perspective, especially on the masculine, which like I know something we've talked about in this podcast is something Kristen and I have both struggled with as like finding a portal into talking about it. It's such a tricky thing. It's, you know, it's because masculinity has been so over conflated with patriarchy and with um, kind of a Euro patriarchal tradition. And the truth is that's one story. And, you know, ecosystems are only resilient insofar as they are biodiverse, as they have more connectivity and more species. So masculinity is like a monocrop. <laughs> it's like this highly disease um, vulnerable monocrop um, that it doesn't actually naturally occur. Um, and so I was trying to think about what would masculinity look like as a biodiverse ecosystem of many different voices, a polyphony where some you know, songs are discordant, some are harmonic, some twist together, many different voices rather than just one. And at the start of your book, you ask, do we want to give the masculine a sword or a flowering wand? So I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that and explain what is the flowering wand? Mm, so the flowering wand is mythically, it pops up in a lot of different traditions. So I was very inspired by the thyrsus of the vegetal Mediterranean god Dionysus. So it was considered to possibly be a fennel stalk, but what it was is, is, is some kind of flowering um, plant or stick that the, the god of ecstasy and nature reverence would wield that would catalyze animals and women and slaves into anti-imperial ecstatic participatory celebration. Um, and so I very much love the thyrsus, the flowering wand. But you see the flowering wand in, in many other traditions. You know, St. Joseph is often um, supposed to carry, the, um, the father of Yeshua, of Jesus, is supposed to carry one. You know, the angel Gabriel of the Annunciation impregnates Mary with a flowering wand with lilies. You know, Joseph of Arimathea and the Arthurian myths are supposed to begin with a flowering wand stuck in Avalon. There are many different traditions of flowering wands. Um, in particular, I love the um, mid-20th century images poet H.D.'s 
um, syncretic poetic musings about the flowering wand called um, Trilogy. Have you ever come across her work? I have that book. I love it. It's one of my favorite books. So, you know, I love love that tradition. But for me, the flowering wand is this organic, natural counterpart to the material reductionist sword, the sword that says that every story can only be solved through conflict, that you cut things apart in order to to understand them, that rationalism, that reason, that understanding should be our, our mode constantly, rather than the connectivity of the wand, you know, wands, you know, you know, uh, Moses's wand turns into snakes that, you know, oftentimes wands, you know, the caduceus of Hermes, that wands are also that which connects us to other species and to a kind of um, communication and connective tissue with our ecosystems. And speaking of connectivity, the mycelial world just shows up in such a beautiful <laughs> and myriad of ways in this in these collections of of essays. Um, can you speak a little bit about your relationship to the world of fungi? Mm, yes. So when I was younger, I was a survivor of early trauma. And it left me with a hypersensitive um, nervous system. You know, I didn't gate out a lot of sensory stimuli that most people do. And this can be, you know, disabling, but it can also be a portal into an awareness of the world that a lot of people don't notice. So I was hyper primed to insects and fungi and rootlets and dirt and beetles. I spent, you know, I, um, my parents moved from the city when I was three upstate into the uh, shadow of Overlook Mountain into a, like a pretty wild forested area. And um, so I grew up spending a lot of time in the dirt looking at fungi and mushrooms. And for me, they were, they occupied this really interesting liminal realm um, morally, that they could be bad, they could be good, poisonous, medicinal. They were honestly like the markers of the fairy world. And they were very much like fairies in that they had their own machinations and cared very little for the world of humans. And when they would interrupt the world of humans, it was often in the most mischievous of ways. So I loved fungi and mushrooms growing up. When I was 16, I fell dramatically ill. And it took several, seven years to finally get a diagnosis, I think. Um, In and out of hospitals, many different diagnoses, incorrect treatments, increasingly ill. And concurrent to this physical um, uh, struggle was a deepening love of fungi, biologically, herbally, magically, and also um, philosophically. And when I finally received the diagnosis of an incurable connective tissue disease, I realized, oh, I've been primed to the connective tissue of ecosystems and the soil because I have an insufficiency of connective tissue in my own body. And I can problematize this capitalistic idea of health occurring in the atomized individual and let it leak past my skin silhouette into another species. That if I can't cure my own connective tissue, I can let the connective tissue of fungi colonize me. I can become their interlocutor. I can work for them. Um, And so that's why I think a lot of fungal metaphors inhabit my work is I always, I'm kind of a, I oftentimes say I'm kind of like that ant that gets taken over by cordyceps. Mm-hmm. And so cordyceps is a kind of fungi and it facilitates the ant to, you know, climb up these, these plants and then sporulate a mushroom out of its head. And I think it's Merlin Sheldrake says, by the time the ant gets to the top of the plant, it's just a fungus in an ant costume. So I would say that I'm just a Sophie, uh, a fungus in a Sophie costume. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. I think, do you know Bette Williams work at all? 
That sounds familiar, but it's not immediately ringing a bell. She wrote um, The Wild Kindness, a psilocybin odyssey, and, and talks about, about how we are all a walking around my cellular network, all the mushroom people. When they meet each other, it like makes new networks of being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Like when, you know, I feel like once you start, you know, speaking fungi publicly, all the other fungi people find you and you create your own little myco hub. Um, so yeah, there's a beautiful um, kind of sporulation effect that happens. In addition to fungi, you also mentioned tarot quite a bit mm-hmm. in your book. And you refer to the Empress card in tarot as a velvety patch of moss and a cozy armchair. You also talk about the high priestess and the lovers and Dionysus as the devil card. So I have to ask, what is your relationship to tarot and how does it influence your work as a storyteller? Thank you for asking. This is not a question I've gotten that often. Um, so I grew up with in Woodstock, New York, with a lot of New Age spirituality, a lot of psychics, a lot of tarot readers. My parents studied the history of religion and spirituality. So this was something that was in the water that I was um, being swimming in. Um, and I, I loved tarot, and I was a professional tarot reader for many years. Um, often, it, at first, it was only locally and in person where I lived. And it, was, you know, it wasn't my main job. It was kind of a side gig and something I would do at parties, sometimes I would occasion, occasionally do. But during COVID, um, you know, when things moved on to the digital realm, it became something that I did um, with a lot of seriousness. And when I was struggling myself and needed to come back to the tarot for ballast, And for me, you know, as someone with PTSD and as someone who had struggled with a pretty intense eating disorder, tarot for me was a way of outsourcing my my intuition to my own intuition. That when I couldn't trust myself, I could trust the version of myself that would show up in the cards. That I, you know, sometimes I couldn't trust myself to make a decision about eating or about doing certain things. I knew that I had too many demons in my ear. But if I pulled a card, I could trust that immediate reaction of myself to the card. <laughs> and it, it was a beautiful way that the, the, the tarot cards were kind of my extended mind, my extended intuition. They were me. And so they, they provided this incredible tool for someone dealing with PTSD and with eating disorder recovery. Um, I think they were more helpful than any type of therapy I did, um, to be perfectly honest. And But the one thing that felt important as I moved through an intense study of the history of the tarot was rooting them in real ecological archetypes, that they were too abstract for me. I actually did something, which is I planted a card in all of these different places across my valley so that every time I pulled a card, it wouldn't just summon an idea or an abstraction. It would be like a mnemonic device for place that the deck became the Hudson Valley and that they were, you know, the deck was a hologram for, for my home, my ecosystem. And so I think what you're seeing in these chapters in the flowering one that are about the tarot is that attempt to compost tarot with ecological metaphors. And I mentioned Dionysus just a minute ago, and I would love to talk about him a little more if that's okay with you. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, most of us here, people who listen to the podcast probably know him as like the wild and playful and sometimes human, sometimes animal, Greek god of wine, um, associated with vegetation and harvest season. 
but you also refer to him as a bull god, a god of women and invasive species. So in your eyes, who is Dionysus and why is he so much more magical than we've been led to believe? So it's important to, I oftentimes say that myths and and heroes that come to us today are palimpsest, which is they are the in, the telephone game of empire, which is empire empire after empire has come into a place and co-opted older myths. So you kind of have to peer through the layers of retelling. And it's really important to note that the Dionysus that comes to us today is the smear campaign of Rome. Rome, who saw him as an incredibly dangerous figure, who had the possibility to ignite the two almost successful revolts against the empire, that of Bakula Anya and that of Spartacus, whose um, partner was a Dionysian priestess. So it's really important to know that the only god ever outlawed by the Roman Empire was Bacchus, Dionysus. The first religious execution on a mass scale was the execution that happened around Pukula Anya. So you can see that the drunk wino who comes to us today is a smear campaign of a much more revolutionary figure who is also called Liber. Liber, which is the root of liberation and freedom. (laughs) Um, So he was a god of revolt and the god of slaves and women and outcasts who were anti-imperial and being subjugated by empire. So I think it's really important to reclaim that um, experience and to begin to go back deeper. So if we really want to understand Dionysus, we have to understand that he's not a Greek god. He predates the Greek pantheon by thousands of years. His name first shows up in Linear B um, in Minoan Crete in 1250 BCE, which means that he's he's a late Bronze Age god who's still a hold out of those Cretan nature-reverent partnership cultures where you don't see heroic individuals or violence or death in their many um, material culture artifacts. What you really see are polyphonic iconographies of many different animals, weather systems, you know, goddesses. You know, Dionysus is still coming from this tradition of egalitarian participation in nature. Um, and he's never even called a theos, a deos in, um, uh, in Greek um, pantheistic traditions. He's called a deos. He's still representative of a more animal-like um, uh, deity. And, you know, it's so he was also not even originally associated with wine. He's, he's initially associated with honeybees, with, with um, swarming <laughs> bees and um, that noise, that buzzing noise in caves, actually, of bees um, making their honey in caves. That was what he originally wasn't even considered to be a human with a human form. He was considered to be bees sometimes also in bull bodies. There's this tradition of these bulls that would die and then that bees would make their hives inside the bulls and create the honey inside the bull. This is a tradition that I love on Crete. Yeah. And so you you, you also see on Crete all of these representations of the bull god, the minotaur. And so there's a lot of belief that the minotaur and Dionysus are probably one and the same figure. Something you mentioned as well, too, that just like really stood out to me when you were talking about him is that in like the Greek and Roman worlds, uh, he's one of the few deities, uh, masculine deities that has never sexually assaulted anyone. Like there's no stories. The of only him. one. Yeah. Oh, he He's is the only, only one. one. Wow. No. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And in fact, there's a story about him that I think is so powerful that I mentioned in the book, which is. So you have this classical figure of the actual Greek invasions of Crete. So the Greeks come with their more um, hierarchical, violent traditions and take over um, Minoan culture and um, in Crete. 
at the end of the Bronze Age. And you see this rearticulated in the myth of Theseus, the Greek, coming into Crete and killing the Minotaur, killing the bull god, and absconding with the lady of the labyrinth, Ariadne. And what he does is he, he kills her brother, he kills her tradition, he rapes her, and he takes her away from her home, and then he leaves her on the beach of Naxos to die. And in one of the earliest traditions of this myth, you know, she doesn't die because Dionysus shows up and he says, why would you fall in love with a man when you could have a god? And he gives the goddess back her crown, literally. He turns her back into a goddess. He gives her the corona borealis in the heavens. And then they get married. And in the marriage, and you can see this in, um, there's a great, I think, fresco in Pompeii of this scene. Um, which is that they totally invert the gender dynamic in this, which is that he, she sits on the throne and he wears a veil and approaches her and sits in her lap in their wedding, which is so incredible. But for me, this this story really encapsulates what we all need to do right now, which is we all need to realize that the other has probably known some kind of violence, trauma, oppression. What does it mean to come into relationship with the beloved knowing that they've been harmed? You also say in your book that myths that stay the same don't survive. And when speaking about Dionysus and his ability to survive and evolve, you refer to him as an adaptogenic hero. And I was wondering if you could expand on that and maybe also explain what an adaptogen is for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term. So as far as I understand it, An adaptogen is some kind of plant or medicine, some kind of natural being that when you take it, it doesn't have a targeted effect. It doesn't do the same thing every time. It has a tailored effect. It goes into your body curiously and says, what specifically do you need? And what it does is it also primes your immune system to respond with more specificity to the issues that it's having. So it brings your body into attunement. What seems really important about adaptogens is that they're tailored. They don't have this kind of colonial, um, you know, homogenized approach. They don't go in with the same tool every time. They go in and ask questions of your body and respond with incredible care and precision. They're like an adapt, they're like an acupuncture needle. They know exactly the right points to hit. And the thing about Dionysus that seems so adaptogenic is every time he appears in a different city, he's always considered to be a stranger, new, and he always looks a little bit different and behaves a little bit different. He freshly adapts himself to the social, ecological, um, political climate of the time period that if he showed up the same every time, he would eventually grow brittle and be out of date. But because he kind of follows this, you know, fungal cycle of decay and then refruit and decay and refruit, he can always refruit as a very specific mushroom that is responding to what's there at that time period. So, you know, I think of reishi, I think of the, the bracket fungi reishi that is an adaptogenic medicine. And I think oftentimes that Dionysus is very much like reishi. Reishi, you know, grows out of dead elm trees. It grows out of death and decay. It understands that death is the womb of life. And it also understands that every time it arrives, it arrives differently. And, and what you were just mentioning too about the other, in your book, I had written it this down that there are no monsters, only bad rewrites of forgotten stories, which I love. And I have to say that you're, how do you pronounce Artemis's kind of counterpart? Actaeon? Actaeon? 
Acteon, yeah, Acteon. Yeah, um, we talk about Artemis a lot on the podcast, but have never talked about Acteon. And um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about um, this relationship and then also kind of wondering how your relationships to myth and stories might have changed as you as you wrote this book. Mm, thank you. So in the Ovid interpretations, when the late, late, Romanized versions of much older stories that come to us, Acteon is a victim. Um, and he's also a, a bad actor and that he catches Artemis bathing. And then, you know, Artemis changes him into a deer and he's eaten by his own hunting dog. So it's, it's, very, it's very much an allegory. It's very didactic and, and, and a punishing story that posits the goddess as being murderous and, and, and capricious and an Acteon is being kind of, you know, getting getting what's coming to him, but also, you know, um, interrupting and violating the goddess's domain. We see a lot of, you know, very simplistic ideas. Um, but the truth is that the story of Acteon far predates Ovid and the later Romanized versions of his story. Actually, the earliest versions of Acteon's story don't come to us written. They come to us iconographically. And so what, if we look at the images, what we actually see is we see the goddess and then we see the goddess turning her counterpart into a deer. And if we look at the you know, mythologems that cover Europe and go down into the Mediterranean basis, we will see that horned gods with antlers or with bull horns are considered the counterpart of the goddess. And in fact, the most magical, most important transformation of a human man was into this trans species king who could wear the horns that showed that he wasn't just the king of human beings, he was the king of the land and the counterpart of the goddess. So what were what a story that used to, I think, probably represent the marriage, the Hieros Gamos of the horned god and you know the huntress has been turned into this, you know, patriarchal allegory <laughs> um, where you have your chaste goddess, you know, whose, whose body is being violated by this man who then she kills, which also casts her in this kind of fetishized um, role of the mother goddess who kills men and, you know, spits them back out. Yeah, to think of the horns more as like a sacredness instead of a punishment, I think is really powerful. A crown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're the original crown, you know. And if you look at the at the oldest cave paintings of spirit workers, you know the the characters are always wearing horns. That to be, you know, shaman is this very problematic term. I like to say spirit workers, but if you look at the tradition of spirit workers, people who could dialogue with nature, who could heal, who could tell stories for the community, they would always be wearing horns. Sophie, I would love for you to read that final benediction in your book if you have it on hand and that's okay with you. Of course, yes. It would be, I would be honored. Um, let me get my book so I can do that. It's right here. It's always such a weird thing to be able to hold it in real life. All right, thank you. A final benediction. May the moon blend us in the bowl of bothness. May we compost our heartbreak, mulch our wounds, pour water into the dry cracks of dead soil. May our wands turn into snakes, our snakes to wands, our swords to flowers. May our pleasure be as intelligent 
and revolutionary as ivy digesting a building. May we find rainwater fermented mead in beehives, gods surfacing, mushroom headed from the mycelial underworld. May we approach mountains as our lovers, landscapes as our own bodies. May we honor the porousness of our bodies, selves, souls, breath, the place where our roots fuse into other roots, the beings that constitute our song, the larger song we sparkle in as one small star in a constellation. May our time be as slow as bluestone, as quick as a hummingbird heart, as sweet as nectar, as thick as pollen, as light as a spore on the wind. May we fill the spaces left behind by blight, by extinction, by harm, with song. May we heal each other. May we ask each being for its story. Thank you. Thank you. Would you be able to speak a little bit about this charge, this poem, this portal? Mm, I think that evolution doesn't just work through a linear progression towards ever differentiated species. The most biological novelty is produced by the moments when two species fuse, when they risk their own shapes and dive into another body. I'm speaking about symbiogenesis, when the two bacteria merge to form the complicated multicellular um, lives that constitute our bodies today, um, lichen as being a composite of fungi and algae um, and bacteria and yeasts. That symbiosis, that fusion is the imperative right now, that we've been differentiating ourselves from nature and from our environments for a long time. But if we're going to survive right now, we need to tie our roots to other roots, to other species, to other places, and to people with other belief systems. Right now, we need to risk our own safety, our own selves, and fuse. Um, and so I think in this book, the biggest imperative is sing into those empty spaces created by extinction. Sing back to the bird that doesn't have a mate. Find a way of stepping into the, the wounds that you have created. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that. We've talked about so many beautiful things today, you know, different deities and fungi. Um, but what is like, you know, if you had to just use maybe like a few words or like a sentence, like what is like the big takeaway? Um, or how do you want people to feel when they read this book and your writings on myth in general? Well, how do I want people to feel? That is a great question. And a friend and astrologer of mine asked me an important question as this book was first being written. And she said, you need to ask how you want to feel. And you need to understand that how you want to feel is how you want other people to feel. That it's, it's an open vein that refluxes mm -hmm. both ways. You know, I live on the Hudson River, otherwise known by the Muncie Lenape as the Mahikintuck, the river that flows both ways. Because, you know, it's a tidal estuary. The ocean refluxes in and then the tide changes direction and becomes clear water. And so I oftentimes think that the way I want to feel is also how I want other people to feel. I want it to be an open vein, um, a dialogue. And so I hope this book has two effects. One, it saved my life to write it. 
I wrote it in the depths of quarantine as a disabled person who had been quarantining alone, who was at a professional standstill, and who had received pretty devastating news from my doctors about my condition. And it saved my life. So I want this book to, if it offers anything, I hope it gives people the nourishment for the day it reaches them. That if they have heartbreak, if they have loss, if they have fear, I hope that it reaches them like an adaptogen and offers some nourishment. And But I also hope that it inspires them to participate in this conversation. That the book is a monologue wanting to become a polyphony, wanting to become a bumptious conversation. So it also, I also hope it inspires other people to bring their own myths, their own stories, their own deities into the conversation. And so, Sophie, I know our time here is coming to an end, but do you have any upcoming projects that you're excited about that you want to mention? Um, And also, where can our listeners find you and your work? Thank you for asking. So my book, The Flowering Wand, has just come out if you want to learn more about the topics that we discussed today. And then my eco-feminist reimagining of the Gospels from Mary Magdalene's perspective comes out this summer called The Madonna Secret. And it's really where I'm trying to walk the walk that I talk in The Flowering Wand. What does it really mean to retell, to rewild, to create an ecosystem rather than a monologue? Um, So that book, I think I'm very excited to be able to share with people. Um, I have an upcoming course that I'm going to be doing with science and non-duality about healing beyond hope and healing beyond the human. What does it, you know, what does it mean when we are exiled from uh, normal narratives of healing? What if we have incurable illnesses or PTSD or trauma that won't resolve? How can we look outside the human for information on how to navigate that tricky terrain? Um, so that begins in February, um, when I think, which I think is when this will be coming out. And you can find me on Substack at sophiestrand.substack.com and Instagram at Cosmogony, where I try and post a lot of free information and interviews and essays, because I think it's really important that we um, remain in conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sophie and listeners, for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>